Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast. Located in Norfolk, Virginia, the MacArthur Memorial is a museum and research center dedicated to the life and legacy of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur. The memorial is also dedicated to preserving and presenting the story of the millions of men and women who served with General MacArthur. Each month, the staff of the memorial will use this podcast to explore topics relating to General MacArthur and his times. Today we're going to focus on General Douglas MacArthur and the atomic bomb. Like many things about MacArthur, his feelings about the bomb were complex and even contradictory at times. This podcast will address MacArthur's reaction to the use of two atomic bombs on Japan in August of 1945. In early 1945, in the wake of a successful Allied invasion of the Philippines, it became increasingly clear that the war would eventually reach the Japanese mainland. Along with the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the other commanders in the Pacific Theater, General MacArthur was tasked with planning the invasion of Japan. This planned invasion was given the code name Operation Downfall and grew to involve several major phases which would require over a million troops. Unlike the European theater, where General Dwight D. Eisenhower had been commander-in-chief of the entire theater, the Pacific theater was broken up into four different areas, each with its own commander-in-chief. This decentralization was something that had to be addressed in the planning of Operation Downfall mainly because there were questions as to which commander would have nominal control over the invasion. As planning progressed, inter-service rivalry pitted the two giants, General MacArthur and Admiral Chester Nimitz, against each other. In the end, the army won, and it was decided that MacArthur would have control over the invasion once the troops landed. On paper, Operation Downfall was the largest planned amphibious invasion in history. It also had the potential to be the costliest invasion. As Allied forces approached ever closer to the Japanese mainland, they encountered fiercer and more deeply entrenched Japanese resistance. On places like Iwo Jima, Japanese forces had to literally be rooted out one by one. Out of the more than 22,000 Japanese soldiers on Iwo Jima, less than 5% would surrender. Over 20,000 would be killed, at a cost of nearly 29,000 American casualties. Anticipating even fiercer military resistance, as well as an extremely hostile civilian population, casualty estimates for Operation Downfall ranged from an estimated 50,800 in the first 30 days of the first stage of the invasion to a staggering 10 million casualties for the entire operation. This larger estimate reflected a projected combined loss of American soldiers, Japanese soldiers, and Japanese civilians. These numbers were also influenced by a general expectation that the Japanese would defend what they regarded as their sacred homeland with every ounce of strength they possessed. Taking this into account, the planners of Operation Downfall reasoned that the human cost of the invasion of Japan would be exponentially higher than any previous battle. In essence, it would likely be worse than D-Day. At this point in the war, the eventual defeat of Japan seemed likely, despite these projected losses. 
As President Harry S. Truman looked over the casualty estimates for Operation Downfall, he was not faced with the question of who would prevail in the conflict, but rather how long it would take to end the war, and how many more would die in the process. Known but to a handful, the United States possessed a superweapon theoretically capable of devastating entire cities. As planning for Operation Downfall continued, Truman would begin to seriously weigh the use of the atomic bomb. The bomb was a product of the highly secretive Manhattan Project and had been in the works for years. The project was so classified that Truman didn't even find out about it until he became president. In his three months as Roosevelt's vice president, he had never once been briefed on the existence of the bomb. Prior to 1939, scientists had discovered that it was theoretically possible to release atomic energy. They just had no practical idea of how to do this. In 1940, before the attack on Pearl Harbor, the United States and Great Britain began collaborating on atomic research. Midway through the war, as Nazi Germany kicked its own atomic quest into high gear, Great Britain and the United States entered into what President Truman later described as a race of discovery against the Nazis. The Manhattan Project would tip the balance in this competition in favor of the Allies, and with a successful test in New Mexico of an atomic bomb on July 16, 1945, the viability of the new weapon became apparent. Delivery of the bomb then became an important factor. By design, the few available bombs were meant to be dropped onto a target. Given the size and weight of the bombs, a heavy bomber was required. In terms of air power, Japan was certainly reachable. As early as April 18, 1942, the Doolittle Raid had clearly demonstrated that the Japanese mainland could be menaced by American bombers. By 1945, as plans for Operation Downfall coalesced, the Allies were well within easy striking distance of Japan. In fact, months of firebombing had already leveled 66 Japanese cities, destroying infrastructure and paralyzing essential industry. As Japan's situation became more and more desperate, many commanders, MacArthur included, continued to believe that Japan had to surrender soon. Many of them based this opinion on the idea that states are rational actors. Despite this optimism, Japan's military leadership remained unwilling to call for peace, and factions within Japan who were in favor of surrender were unable to gain traction. On July 26, 1945, Japan was given an ultimatum in the form of the Potsdam Declaration. Issued by President Harry Truman, Prime Minister Winston Churchill, and Chiang Kai-shek, the leader of the Republic of China, the Potsdam Declaration called for the unconditional surrender of Japan and warned that refusal to surrender would result in prompt and utter destruction. While other commanders like Eisenhower and Nimitz had some knowledge of the Potsdam Declaration and had even advised on the military aspects of the ultimatum, MacArthur was largely isolated from the decision-making. He would find out about the Potsdam Declaration through commercial radio reports and through a briefing given on August 2nd by General William Ritchie, the liaison between MacArthur and Army Chief of Staff General George Marshall. MacArthur would not get a full-text copy of the Declaration until August 12th, 
after two bombs had already been dropped and several days before the actual surrender of Japan. According to several of MacArthur's biographers, MacArthur was appalled by the Potsdam Declaration, mainly because it left the future status of the Japanese emperor unclear. He felt that the Japanese would never forsake the emperor and that no meaningful peace could be forged without first clarifying what would happen to the emperor in the event of a surrender. He was also deeply offended that as a commander in the Pacific, his opinion had not been solicited in the matter. As MacArthur predicted, the ultimatum was difficult for the Japanese to accept. The status of the emperor was incredibly important to the Japanese government and was non-negotiable as far as they were concerned. After much heated debate, Prime Minister Suzuki Kentaro used the Japanese word mokusatsu, meaning ignore, to characterize the position of the Japanese government. Finding unconditional surrender unacceptable, the Japanese government ultimately did not respond to the Potsdam Declaration in a satisfactory manner. Through the kamikaze pilot and the stubborn, relatively suicidal determination of the Japanese soldier, Japan's leaders had hoped to make the cost of war so unbearable that the Allies would grow tired of the sacrifice of men and treasure and eventually settle for something less than unconditional surrender. What they did not anticipate was that the United States had a new superweapon that would use this very strategy against them. With no adequate response from the Japanese regarding the Potsdam Declaration, President Truman authorized the use of the atomic bomb. The Potsdam Declaration made no mention of the atomic bomb. In part, this may have been because the existence of the bomb was a closely guarded secret. Even if it had been mentioned, however, few would have likely believed that such a superweapon existed. In addition, it is important to note that even today, debate continues as to whether the bomb was originally intended as the consequence for rejecting the terms of the Potsdam Declaration. Basically, whether it was on the table or not initially, planning for its use had been underway for some time. In early July, the Joint Chiefs sent MacArthur, Nimitz, and General Hap Arnold, commander of the United States Army Air Force, high-priority orders that certain cities in Japan were not to be attacked by any forces under any circumstances. Although the commanders were not told why, these cities were to be left unscathed so that if atomic bombs were used on them, each target would provide a more reliable estimate of the destructive power of the bomb. On July 25th, naval ordnance expert Captain William S. Parsons landed in Guam with films of the July 16th atomic test from New Mexico. Admiral Nimitz, Admiral Raymond Spruance, General Curtis LeMay, and selected members of their staffs were stunned by the footage. As with the Potsdam Declaration, MacArthur was only made privy to the existence of the atomic bomb shortly prior to the attack on Hiroshima, at the end of July, when Brigadier General Thomas Farrell was sent to brief him. On August 1st, MacArthur was then told by General Carl A. Spots that a bomb would definitely be used against Japan. Spots had been delayed in getting to MacArthur, and actually, had the weather been suitable, the first bomb would have been dropped before MacArthur knew anything about it. This delay in informing MacArthur may or may not have been deliberate. Orders advising the commanders of the decision to drop the bomb were very clear. 
No comments were to be made about the bomb without first being cleared through Washington. It is possible that there were fears that MacArthur would make unauthorized comments about the bomb. And it is also possible that once the decision had been made, no one wanted to hear MacArthur's objections or suggestions. On August 5th, MacArthur was advised that a bomb would be dropped on an industrial area south of Tokyo. The next day, on August 6th, at 8.15 in the morning, an atomic bomb, nicknamed Little Boy, was dropped on Hiroshima. Nearly five square miles of the city were totally destroyed, and more than 70,000 people were killed instantly. Additionally, over 70,000 were injured. The next day, on August 7th, MacArthur was informed of the Manhattan Project, and was given a briefing on the bomb by Dr. Carl Compton, one of President Truman's advisors. During this meeting, MacArthur was indignant to discover that Eisenhower, whose theater of operations had been in Europe, had known of the bomb weeks before he himself had even been told. Like Eisenhower, however, MacArthur was greatly disturbed by the decision to use the bomb. In his autobiography, he describes the atomic bomb as the most destructive and revolutionary weapon in the long history of warfare. According to his pilot, W.E. Rhodes, MacArthur was incredibly depressed in the wake of the first bomb because he saw it as a turning point in warfare. It is also likely that he was growing increasingly aware of his exclusion from the major decisions being made concerning Japan. In the days leading up to the dropping of the second atomic bomb, MacArthur remarked to correspondent Theodore White, Wars are over. There will never be another war. There can't be any more wars. But on the other hand, he also held no illusions about the savagery of a potential invasion of Japan. As he told the Joint Chiefs, he expected 90,000 to 100,000 American casualties just in Operation Olympic, the first stage of Operation Downfall. When the first bomb failed to bring about a Japanese surrender, the dropping of a second bomb was authorized. Kokura was the intended target for the morning of August the 9th, but due to a lack of visibility over that city, Nagasaki, an alternate site, was selected. Nagasaki was a last-minute addition to the list of potential targets. Earlier, Kyoto had been on the list, but had been removed by Secretary of War Henry L. Stimson who had honeymooned decades earlier in the city. Stimson felt that Kyoto was a World Heritage Site, and as a result, Kyoto was replaced by Nagasaki. At 11.01 a.m., a superfortress released an atomic bomb nicknamed Fat Man over Nagasaki. This bomb leveled a mile-wide radius of the city, instantly killing over 40,000 people and injuring 60,000 more. As with Hiroshima, the effects of the bomb would continue to add to this casualty list in the future. Following the use of the first bomb, MacArthur had told an aide that the Japanese would think the destruction was supernatural, and that the psychological impact of the bomb would give the emperor and the Japanese people a face-saving opportunity to surrender. On August 10th, Japan sent word through the Swiss government of its acceptance of the Potsdam Declaration on the condition that the emperor would not be removed. The next day, the United States accepted the Japanese request to keep the emperor, ostensibly so that Emperor Hirohito could use his authority to order Japanese forces to surrender as well as authorize his government to sign the instrument of surrender. 
On August 12th, the United States halted air attacks on Japan, and on August 15th, Japan agreed to the terms of surrender. Emperor Hirohito addressed the Japanese people and announced the surrender, asking them to endure the unendurable and to suffer the insufferable with him. At the surrender ceremony, MacArthur accepted the surrender of the Japanese on behalf of the Allied powers. He then gave a speech in which he said, A great tragedy has ended. The entire world is quietly at peace. Later in his speech, he made it a point to emphasize that the human race needed a spiritual recrudescence and improvement in character in order to temper mankind's matchless advances in science. Nevertheless, while he was critical of these advances in science, while examining the planned suicidal defenses of Tokyo Bay, MacArthur remarked that the bomb saved the United States half a million casualties and likely ended the war. There was little doubt in his mind that the invasion of the Japanese mainland would have easily produced five times the savagery of Okinawa and Iwo Jima. Ever conscious of post-war objectives, MacArthur felt that the future reconciliation with Japan would have been nearly impossible after such enormous Allied losses. Still, he couldn't help but worry about the future, specifically the plight of civilians. MacArthur had been aware of the hardships of the Filipino people throughout the war, and he knew that war often touched civilians. Despite this, he felt deeply that civilians should never be intentional targets. They were certainly soft targets, but to MacArthur, wars were meant to be decided by the combat of opposing military forces. With the bomb, however, it seemed to him that cities, where civilians lived, were the new targets of war. While he acknowledged that the bomb had saved countless lives, both American and Japanese, he nevertheless found its use troubling. Like Eisenhower and other commanders, MacArthur would consider the use of the bomb on Japan a civilian decision by President Truman, not a military decision. It has been suggested that MacArthur may have been upset that the use of the bombs canceled Operation Downfall thus costing him the chance to lead the largest amphibious invasion in history. Ever complex and contradictory, for MacArthur this is certainly a possibility. To date, however, there is scant evidence to suggest that this was the case, or that it was his only reaction to the bomb. Towards the end of MacArthur's life, he would become more critical of the decision to use the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. He would refer to the decision as a monumental failure of statescraft, and consider it one of the many impulsive and rash decisions made by President Truman. He would also claim to have suggested that instead of targeting a city, that the bomb be dropped in Japan's inland sea to both demonstrate its awesome power and to potentially create a tsunami that would cause enough devastation to bring about a surrender. Ultimately, while MacArthur believed that the bomb saved lives in the long run, he worried about the future of the weapon and the wisdom of future leaders. Ironically, however, years after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, during the Korean War, as Supreme Commander, and even after his dismissal, he would recommend the use of the bomb. He clearly trusted himself to use the weapon properly, implying that his reservation about its use on Japan was limited to a case in which he had been excluded from the decision-making process. Then again, 
It is important to note that his recommendations for the use of nuclear weapons in Korea mainly revolved around military targets, confirming his stated belief that civilians should not be intentional targets. In conclusion, to summarize the complexity of MacArthur's thoughts on the atomic bomb, MacArthur once warned that even the lesson of victory brings with it a profound concern. And yet, in the future, as the Korean War entered a bloody stalemate, he would also warn that there was never a substitute for victory. In anticipation of Operation Downfall, over half a million Purple Hearts had been minted. With the surrender of Japan and the cancellation of Operation Downfall, these Purple Hearts were never used. Since then, however, the Purple Heart medals intended for Operation Downfall casualties have been awarded to those wounded or killed in later wars. These unused medals have gone to veterans of the Korean War, the Vietnam War, and every conflict leading up to the present wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. A future podcast will explore in depth MacArthur's thoughts on the use of nuclear weapons in the Korean War. Thank you for listening. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.